0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of this podcast. Today I'm joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. That, of course, is a semi-temporary position that he's permanently holding for now. Uh, Greg, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. We, We are in peak fall weather right now in North Carolina, where... Depending on the day, it's like 60, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, sunny, beautiful. I'm loving it. Uh, I am as well. Yeah, it's good. All right. Uh, if you listen to the show and you enjoy it and you want to support us, there's many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the podcast. You could join our email newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com newsletter. Uh, that is not purely a charitable act on your end. It is free. And... You basically get uh, really nice emails every now and then giving you updates about new research about exercise and nutrition. So it's a nice little newsletter to be part of. Uh, If you're looking for a one-on-one virtual coach, uh, online coaching services, we do offer that at Stronger by Science. You can learn more, you know, learn more about our pricing, check out our team of very excellent coaches by going to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want to get very affordable supplements for even better prices, you can get those at BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code. The code is SBSPOD, and that gets you 5% off your entire order. And then, of course, if you'd like to support us even more, you could subscribe to the Mass Research Review that goes out every single month, the first of the month, and it contains a bunch of very practical, very thorough summaries of the newest research in exercise and nutrition, And of course, you could subscribe to the Macro Factor Diet app, which we co-developed, which does have a free trial, so you can try it out and see if you like it before you make any kind of a financial commitment. Um, Now, the big news that everyone's talking about. I've been getting a lot of mail about this. It is officially the 100th episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Um, I know what people are thinking, Eric, weren't there some other pieces of content you guys put out? Yes, but the, that's not the Stronger by Science podcast. The hundredth episode does not include fireside chats because um, we don't really want to tarnish the brand by incorporating that. Uh, we got a lot of negative reviews about those episodes. Uh, it doesn't include bonus episodes and live events and things like that. This is a hundred episodes of the pure, uncut stuff that everybody
1: loves. Well, I, I would say, I would say that. It's understandable if people think that Fireside Chats and the regular podcast are the same thing, because, yeah, sure, when you subscribe to the Stronger by Science podcast, you do get those other episodes. They show up in the same podcast feed, but they, they are different, and I would push back against your characterization. It's more like when, uh, you know, after someone sells out and they they do projects like maybe they make movies with like big budgets for a big audience or whatever but they still want to make art on the side they want to do something for them where it's not just about the reach and the paycheck it's about trying to make something truly great that's what that's what the fireside chats are um and you know some people don't appreciate art but that's fine yeah i don't really get it to be honest um but
0: anyway so there's a big question that's been floating around Uh, because obviously everybody's been looking forward to this 100th episode. Uh, People were asking me, Eric, is this the first ever fitness podcast to reach 100 episodes? And actually, the answer is no. Um, Now, we were the first podcast and by default, the first fitness podcast. But then, as we know, a lot of copycat podcasts kind of popped up. Iron Culture is one of them. There's been a few others. Um, But they've just been churning out a bunch of a bunch of content, we'll put it that way. Uh, really, we'll, we'll
1: put it that way, quite charitably. Yeah,
0: they've yeah. been churning them out pretty quickly, not putting a whole lot of thought into the quality. You know, very much pushing the quantity side of things. So yeah, they can put out several episodes a week. Uh, you know, just really poorly done, shoddy work. Not a lot of insight. Not a lot of quality. But we've been curating a premium, high level, uh, multimedia infotainment experience with video and screenshots of, of you know figures from studies it's a really big production here and that takes time and it takes a lot of effort so it has taken us a little bit further or a little bit longer to get to the hundred episode threshold but i'm glad that we took
1: our time with it and really put together a great thing no i i agree wholeheartedly i mean at the end of the day i'd rather have a hundred ferraris than 240 ford pintos absolutely for, for, for yeah. instance yeah yeah for sure
0: um now moving on The other thing that's in the news, a big thing that's been on everyone's minds for about 11.9 months, it's Fat Bear Week. It's Fat Bear Week. Again, so the National Park Service every year does Fat Bear Week. Um, Do you mind giving us a brief overview of the the purpose and the premise?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I won't talk about this as much as I did last year, but in short, bears have to get fat for the winter. That's just a fact of life uh, because they hibernate. And, uh, hibernate, this is, this is what I went off on a big tangent about last year, but hibernation, it's not all fun and games, folks. Uh, I think people just assume that when bears hibernate, they go in their little den, they get nice and cozy, and either they, they just, like, peacefully sleep all winter, or, uh, you know, they're just in there with their family and their little cubs and they're just having a grand old time and, and it's great. Little wood burning stove and it's all cozy. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how hibernation is, folks. Hibernation's fucking terrible. Uh, you so essentially in animals that hibernate, their body just goes into a low energy mode, uh, more or less. And so like the uh, real
0: metabolic adaptation. Correct. Some would say.
1: And as part of that um for reasons i don't entirely understand they also just like don't sleep much like it it leads to to shorter uh sleep periods and so yeah you're you're just like they're just laying there with like basically insomnia um and just like gnawing hunger as they slowly almost starve to death over like four or five months and it's just a miserable experience um not good all around But if they want that to go as smoothly as possible, they need to get as fat as possible beforehand. So the Katmai National Park uh, takes pictures of uh, quite a few of the bears that live there, both right after they get out of hibernation to see their uh, svelte post-hibernation physiques, and then around this time, which is pretty soon before they're going to start hibernating, so you can basically see how effectively they've bulked over the spring and summer and, and early autumn months. Um, and it's very important that the bears do that. And so as a way to cheer them on, show them the, the support you would like to give them for their successful bulks, uh, the, the Katmai National Park team put these pictures of the bears on the website so you can see their before and afters and vote. On which ones got the got the fattest the most effectively Uh, and there's a bracket and it's quite prestigious to win like it's it's a pretty big deal uh it 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 will be the talk of the bear community for the forthcoming year it's also like pretty serious they don't just do one of those things where
0: they rotate it and say like okay you won it last year so we'll give it to a different bear who's never won it like there there's some some multiple time like reigning champions who have a a
1: serious number of banners hanging in their rafters oh yeah yeah so um do do we do we want to get into our picks and like a little bit of background for some other bears yeah so last year i was a big 32 chunk kind of guy 32 chunk is
0: the technical name but the super fans say 32 chunk um and i'm sticking with it you know like we had a tough year last year no question really underperformed in the bracket but I think this is a good year for 32 Chunk. And the reason that I really like 32 Chunk is I I do kind of, I I think he's really relatable uh, for me specifically. So, you know, he's kind of misunderstood. They, They say that he's a patient bear and that he'll occupy the same spot for extended periods of time. A lot of people don't know much about bear meditation practices, but 32 Chunk is very clearly a meditating bear that... A lot of folks in the National Park Service just don't really get that, mm. but I get that. I can relate to that big time. They also say, despite his fishing skills, he often waits for scraps and leftovers from other bears. Again, that that's just kind of a Buddhist principle of not being wasteful, You know, making sure that everything goes to use. So yeah, I, I, I think you can make a strong case that, much like myself, 32 Chunk is is walking the noble eightfold path, and, and I'm really proud of him for it, and I think he's going to win.
1: Yeah, so I, I think my my pick uh, might reveal some some of the temperamental differences between the two of us. So I am once again rolling with 128 Grazer. That's who I picked last year. She didn't pull it out. And quite frankly, if I'm being honest, as an objective fan, I, I think she brought a better package last year than this year. Uh, she she certainly had an effective summer bulk, but I don't think it was quite as extreme. So I don't think she's going to win, but y- you know you know what fandom is all about. Uh, as as a boy from ohio like you've seen people who've been supporting the browns their entire lives and sometimes it just is what it is but 128 grazer uh her her description states that she is in especially defensive and assertive bear when she has cubs or when defending a prime fishing location she's not going to be picking over scraps she's getting the best fish for herself um She's been known to push other bears away when they get too close. She's not afraid of physical altercations, which I think is very cool, especially for a bear. Um, And uh, her disposition allows her and her cubs access to some of the best fishing spots on the river. So she's willing to put her body on the line to do right by her kids. And I I think that's very commendable. Um, If you're listening to this and you'd like to participate in Fat Bear Week, uh, here, here's a little, a little glimpse from Vegas. If you're, if you're trying to cash in, I have no idea if you can bet on Fat Bear Week. I bet there's some degenerate gambling site based somewhere in Europe that lets you. Uh, if anyone's listening to this, check out Patty Power and see if they have gambling on Fat Bear Week. It really wouldn't surprise me. Um, but yeah, so if you're, if you're the type of person who, you know. In baseball, you support the Yankees. In college football, you support Alabama. Like you just want to go with the big brands that have a that have a good chance of winning every year. Um probably you should be interested in 480 Otis. 480 Otis was the champion in 2021, uh, and also 2014, 2016, and 2017. I believe 480 Otis has the most uh Fat Bear Week championships. Uh, of any bear currently in the in the bracket and maybe of all time i gotta say once once again like 128 grazer i don't think 480 otis is bringing his best package into 2022 uh certainly got fat i have i have no doubts that he'll survive the winter but boy howdy if there are if there are images archived on this website from last year Check out his 2021 picks. He got so fucking fat in 2021. I don't think I don't think he's bringing quite the same level of dedication uh to the competition this year, but you know, he he's a proven winner. He's a yeah. proven champion. Um my pick to win it all this year. Again, I hope he doesn't. I I'm, I'm I hope 128 Grazer pulls it out. But just looking at these pictures, it's hard to pick against 151 Walker. Um he geez he cultivated just a tremendous amount of mass over this summer um and, and yeah just, just based on the information that's publicly available if if the voters are fair and objective uh i i think he probably has the best chance of winning this year
0: yeah i mean time will tell we'll, we'll have to see what happens but it's going to be an exciting uh you know it'll probably be down to the wire as it always is it always is yeah all right, uh, moving on. Greg, you ready for some hard-hitting scientific content?
1: I am. Awesome. Well, you're up first. What What do you got for us? Cool. So um, I'm going to step, I wouldn't say fully outside of my lane, but, but just firmly into your lane uh, to talk about something that you have far more expertise than me about. But uh, I wrote an article about it, and I realized, uh, I think we published it when the podcast was still on break. So uh we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, and quite frankly if i'm if I'm being completely honest with the audience um I didn't want a segment this week that I had to do all that much work on uh last week i my my segment on inter individual variability and in training responses I thought that would be a tight thirty it ran like an hour forty five uh so i I think i uh maybe overexerted myself on that segment a little bit, wanted something a little bit easier. And also this week, just as a little teaser, uh, I've been working on an article that will be published, I think is the mass cover story, should be Should be out on November 1st, about uh, the effects of, of range of motion and long muscle length training on strength and hypertrophy, uh, working on that with Milo Wolfe. Um, so yeah, that's that's been most of my work this week. So I, I wanted a podcast topic that I could just look at content I've made before and not have to work that hard. So that's that's the level of commitment you're getting from me this week. I assume Eric's segment will be fantastic. Now, uh, before we get
0: into it, though, so this was an article not on StrongerByScience.com. This was on MacroFactorApp.com. Yes. One thing MacroFactor related that we I don't think we've mentioned yet on the podcast is recipe sharing. Is that something that we can uh, share with with the good people?
1: I think we can.
0: Awesome. You want to you want to tell a little bit about recipe sharing?
1: Yeah, you, you can share recipes now. Uh, it's very cool. In macro factor. Yeah.
0: So yeah. All right. Go on.
1: <laughs> um. But yeah. No. No. It's it's awesome. Uh, if you make a custom food or recipe, you can just tap on it. There's a button that says share. It pulls up the same sort of sharing menu that you would see for any other app if you wanted to share a link from anywhere around the web. Um. So yeah, if you are if you and your partner or a training partner or friend or whatever are using Macrofactor together, one of you makes a recipe, one of you creates a custom food, you can just click share, share a link with them. When they click on the link, it will automatically pull that custom food or recipe up in the app and you can save it to your own custom foods or recipes, add it straight to your plate. Uh, works really well, it's very slick. Um, very good stuff.
0: And it doesn't just send like, oh, hey, here's the macros for that casserole. It actually sends the entire recipe in a way that can be changed. So like if you had a version of it and you put sour cream on it and I didn't, you could send the whole thing over. I could remove the sour cream, but keep everything else intact.
1: Yeah. And and including like steps for how to prepare the recipe. So instead of basically just sending over an ingredient list, if you create a recipe and you actually like make a recipe like hey here's how you make this dish um you can save that for yourself and when you share that recipe with someone else all of this preparation instructions how long it takes to prepare all of that stuff that will also be ported over because for me that's the worst part is when i'm putting together my
0: chickpea and rice dishes as people say well how long do i microwave the chickpeas and i'd say oh 90 seconds you know and a lot of that gets lost in the shuffle but, yeah for sure but it's nice to keep that
1: that that granular data. Yeah, I, I don't know if people could prepare most of the meals you make if they just had the ingredient list. Like I don't it, think so. No. Y- you really need those instructions. Yeah. Uh but yeah, so so let's get into this. Um so uh the article was about and this segment will be about body composition. Both uh how well and how accurately it can be assessed and uh what you should or shouldn't do with the information that you might glean from a body composition assessment. Uh the reason I thought this was an important topic to discuss, to write an article about and now to talk about on the podcast is it seems like a lot of people put a lot of value and weight on the numbers they get from a body composition assessment. Um you know, like I, I see a lot of people who set goals like, you know, I, I want to be able to walk around at 12% year round or like I want to get below 20% body fat or whatever. Um, or, you know, they they put uh, a lot of value on quantifying their body comp before and after a bulk to try to assess exactly how much muscle they've gained over like the prior six months or whatever. Um, so, so people seem to put a lot of value in, in these numbers. They use it to guide decision making to evaluate how well a recent diet went or how mu- or how well a recent training phase went um so I think it's worth just discussing in broad terms like should you do that <laughs> um and and the the short answer is no uh and the long answer is the topic of this segment so first things first, when talking about body comp um it's it's first worth asking, like, what is actually being measured? So, Eric, as the actual body comp expert on the podcast, if you wanted to actually measure human body composition, how how would you have to do that?
0: That would uh, technically be done via a post-mortem dissection yes. and a chemical analysis of the tissues removed. All right,
1: so... Um, which i've never done by the way for the record yes uh that is good to know so uh do you know of a way to actually measure body composition in a living human subject i do not that's good i don't either just wanted to make sure i uh, wasn't sharing lies with people so yeah if if you actually wanted to get your body comp measured uh you would have to be dissected which i assume most people don't want to do so uh any any way that you go about trying to assess your body composition is just going to be an estimate based on other things. So it's first worth asking, just kind of in broad terms, what is actually being measured when you have your body composition assessed and in what way are those measurements actually associated with body composition? So um, there are several popular methods someone might use to go about assessing their body comp. Uh just kind of to go down a list uh kind of in an old school one like that used to be considered a eh, not exactly gold standard but like silver standard measurement uh that people used to use quite a lot back in the seventies and eighties still exists not quite as popular anymore uh is underwater weighing or hydrostatic wane. what's actually being measured there uh is uh displacement of water via the the Archimedes principle like Uh, assessing how much you weigh on land versus how much you weigh underwater to then estimate how much water you're displacing. Once you have an idea of how much water is being displaced, you roughly know your body's volume. And from there, if you know your body's mass and volume, you can estimate your body's density. And since lean mass tends to be more dense than fat mass, you can use total body density to estimate body composition. Uh, The bod pod is is more or less just an updated version of underwater weighing it works on very similar principles Um, it's actually measuring changes in air pressure within a confined chamber Um, but it's more or less doing the same thing like you measure your body's weight you estimate your body's volume via the bod pod and then it's the same sort of deal like if you're less dense it's assumed you have more fat if you're more dense it's assumed you have more lean mass Um, Some other popular methods are uh, skinfold calipers and ultrasound. So with both of these, essentially what you're doing is you're measuring the thickness of subcutaneous fat at various points in the body. Uh, And then it's just kind of assumed that if you have more subcutaneous fat, you also just have more fat elsewhere, particularly visceral fat. So you just uh, essentially roughly estimate total uh, body fatness from measurable subcutaneous fat thicknesses. Uh, probably the most commonly used method for assessing body composition, and quite frankly, one of the worst, if not the worst, is bioelectrical impedance, um, which essentially what what happens there is you make skin contact with electrodes. Uh, if If you've gone to a gym, a lot of gyms have these little devices where you just hold the thing out in front of you and it passes a a current like through your arms. Uh, also a lot of smart scales have BIA technology built in where there's little electrodes that you stand on, passes that electrical current through your feet. Um, and essentially the more total tissue you have, the more it will impede that electrical current. But in particular, fat impedes the electrical current to a greater extent than lean mass does. So if the BIA device sees greater total impedance, it just assumes you have more body fat. Fun little story about bioelectrical
0: impedance. Well, two funny stories. Yeah. Um, One of them was that one of my uh, previous professors uh, from undergrad, he drew the short straw among the grad students back when he was in school. And they were trying to see how much they could fool a BIA device mm-hmm. just by messing with hydration within a single day. Yeah. And like I said, he drew the short straw. So they got him more dehydrated than you would advise oh, uh, no. in a controlled setting and measured. And then just, you know, said, all right, drink up as many fluids as you want, Gatorade, water, etc And just within the span of a, of a day. His body fat percentage reading went from just absolutely shredded on one side of the spectrum to like very, very, very high body fat percentage, like a, a lifetime's worth of fat gain or fat loss within a single day. Yeah. Uh, a- another anecdote was so, Greg, you remember when we were teaching at UNC, we had the little uh, BIA devices. So, when we were learning how to use those in kind of a big group setting, I had just competed. Uh, a couple weeks prior in bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. And this was, bef- this was like 2013 before I actually like knew anything about dieting and more importantly, what to do after a diet. Yeah. So like, dude, I just ballooned up after this competition. It was at the point where like, you know, if I would take off my socks at the end of the day, I could still see like them
1: imprinted on my legs. Like my body was just it, yeah. like a weird like water balloon. You're, you're like lean, healthy, active... Don't actually have any vascular issues, but you sh- you still probably should have been wearing the compressive socks that yeah. like people wear on airplanes. Yeah,
0: it's a very strange like temporary physiological state where yeah. you're just like, why do my lower legs look like I have like severe heart failure right now? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, probably not a good thing, not recommended. But yeah, like you know, my body just didn't know what to do with all these calories, water retention, etc. And but like I had already gained. Uh, I don't know how many weeks it was since my show, but I already gained like from my stage weight easily like 15 pounds and I, I do the thing, do everything according to instructions, like 5.4% body fat. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, you should have seen me 15 pounds ago <laughs> you know, when I was, when I was apparently 2% body fat and like, yeah, of course it was just nonsense, but yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be careful with those things.
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, so, um, when, when I was teaching that same class, like there was uh, like one of the other elfit instructors um, who who was like in another program didn't have to take any like body comp related classes for for his major or whatever um you know like w- when we were learning about how to use those devices like we all used them uh had, had BIA assess or body comp and this guy like this guy was lean like he he had a visible six pack like wasn't like sub 10%. But it was like comfortably sub 15%. Uh the, the BIA device said he was like 27% body fat yeah. and he started having like a small meltdown and identity <laughs> crisis. Yeah. And like s- s- me and some of the other ex fiz kids had to go over to him and be like, "Look, like they're not going to teach you this in sports management, but like <laughs> these devices are fake. Like you don't yeah. you don't need to worry about this." Yeah. Um But yeah, so uh, moving on, uh, there are several popular methods of assessing body comp. They basically just use body geometry. So there's a formula developed by the U.S. Navy back in the day. uh, There's simple weight to height ratios. And now they're like fancy high-tech 3D body scanners. And all of these methods work on the same general principles where people people whose bodies have a particular shape, uh, the shape of their body tends to be at least somewhat indicative of how much fat they're storing. So like in particular, if you have a particularly large waist circumference relative to how tall you are or relative to limb circumferences, that's generally indicative of storing more body fat. Like that, that's the general principle that, that these things work on. Um, and then finally... Uh, There is DEXA, Dual Energy X-ray Absorptiometry, um, which look like very high-tech machines because they are. um, But essentially what they do is they pass uh, very weak X-rays through your body and essentially try to assess how much energy is being absorbed by the X-ray. And the way they convert that to an actual body comp uh, estimate is, is pretty interesting. So... Your bones will absorb more energy than any of your other tissues. Uh, Your lean mass will absorb less than bone, and your fat mass will absorb uh, less than lean mass will. And essentially, that will create a little 2D printout where your bones show up, like in in kind of the unfiltered way. Bones are very white. Uh, Lean mass is like a a mid-gray, and then fat mass is like a very, very dark gray because it's not absorbing as much energy. Essentially, the darker something is, the the less energy it's absorbing. Um, I know there are some devices now that will make like very colorful printouts from that same information, but uh, it's the same general principle. And essentially, then there's just an algorithm that counts pixels (laughs) um, that looks to like basically roughly quantify like how dark or light a particular pixel is and then sort it to say like, Ooh, that's a bone pixel. That's a lean mass pixel. That's a fat mass pixel. Um, and that's, that's more or less how DEXA assesses body comp. So those are the basic methods. Like those are, I think all of the popular methods that someone would use to estimate their body comp, uh, what is actually being measured, how those things relate to body composition. Um, but it's worth noting as as we've already like partially touched on that all of these methods have uh you know potential confounders that that make them not just like one-to-one perfect representations of actual body composition. So like for for example with hydrostatic wane or the bod pod, um like the the formulas that feed into those just basically assume that everyone has the same density of their fat mass and lean mass which we know in in many cases to be um like not a true assumption so like the the density of the lean mass component uh can can vary between races i think the density of the lean mass component tends to decrease as age increases uh hydration levels can affect things. So there there are a lot of little things that can kind of throw off that relationship between body density and body composition. Um, and, and there are even some things that are more uh more practical
0: rather than theoretical that a lot of people don't know about if they oh, haven't yeah. been in a lab. So like
1: can you exhale all the way? <laughs>
0: yeah, like a a major issue with underwater weighing. People say, "Well, how hard can it be? You measure on land, measure in the water. Easy enough." Well, you have to get every bit of air out of your lungs that you possibly can. Otherwise, you're altering your underwater weight.
1: And, and, and a lot then, of people freak out. And then even after you exhale, you still have some residual volume in your lungs. How can you measure that? Well, you can't. You, right. just, you just have to make an estimate. Like, I I forget what the actual value is, but there's like some number where it's like, okay, if if someone exhaled all the way, we're just going to assume they still have this amount of air left in their lungs. Do they actually have that precise amount of air left in their lungs? Eh, who knows? But we just hope that they do. Yeah, and with Bod Pod,
0: Greg, <laughs> you walk in with a beard like that, a lot of air that gets trapped in a beard. That's true. Can be tough
1: to deal with. Yes. Um so so yeah, like those those are some things that can affect like bod pod and underwater Wayne. We've already touched on BIA, like, basically anything can throw off a BIA estimate. Bad Uh, mood. Yeah, Yeah. like, I'm sure, like, if if it's, like, Saturn rising or something, yeah, yeah, like, whatever. Uh, We we could probably come up with a shorter list of things that don't uh, deleteriously affect BIA measurements. Um, But then for things like uh, U.S. Navy formula, weight-to-height ratio, 3D body scanners, um, you know, like people have differing regional fat storage patterns that could throw those things off, like uh, particularly, well, for all three of those formulas, waist circumference is taken into account. If someone just stores a lot more subcutaneous fat than visceral fat, all of those things are going to underestimate their body fat percentage. Uh, And then with DEXA, um, like, you know, basic things like hydration, are you adequately fasted? Those can throw off DEXA estimates. But uh, a big factor is just that you're extrapolating 3d estimates of body composition from 2d images uh, and, and i think you mentioned this that on average about 40% of the pixels will have some bone in them and since bone is is like the brightest indicator on a dexa scan it absorbs the most energy in pixels with bone in them which again is like 40% of your body um you just like can't estimate the the fat or lean mass that is above or below those bones just, just because the bones overpower everything else so um even though dex is very high tech like there there are still some like uh basic extrapolation issues with deriving body comp estimates from those 2d scans yeah
0: I, th- that's always the the thing you tell people and they're stunned because dexa is expensive and it gives you know bone density metrics people think you know oh this has to be ultra precise there's probably minimal if any shortcomings And you say yeah well what we do is we stack up these pixels and then before we even begin counting we lose half yeah almost and people are like holy shit for real and, yeah yeah i mean yeah, this once bone is in the pixel, like a pixel can only be one thing and, and the bone just gets thrown away basically for that purpose.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, mo- moving forward, uh, now that we've actually talked about what's actually being measured when you're assessing body composition uh, and we acknowledge that any any assessment is just an estimate, it's worth asking how accurate, reliable, and precise are these estimates? And there is a lot of research that you could point to on, on this. Um, and in the show notes, we'll link a seven part article series by James Krieger that, that goes into this, just kind of technology by technology, just citing a lot of research that looks specifically at the accuracy and reliability of all of these methods of assessing body comp. I'm not gonna go through all of the research like one by one for each method because then I'll be I'll be staring down another 90 minute segment. And quite frankly, that would be boring as shit. But in in broad terms, um, most methods of assessing body composition work pretty well for groups. So if you you know recruit twenty people and um, you know put them through any of these methods of assessing body composition, and it says that like the mean body fat percentage for this group of people was twenty two percent. There's a very good chance that if you then, like if the Declaration of Helsinki didn't exist and like the Nuremberg Code didn't exist, if you could just like kill these people and dissect them and actually measure their body composition, their actual like mean body fat percentage would probably be somewhere between like 19 and 25%. So like on a group level, even things like BIA do a pretty good job at estimating average body composition for a sufficiently large group of people. Um, and the same is true for assessing changes in body composition. Like if, uh, after a 16 week training intervention, it's found that, you know, body fat percentage has decreased by 5% and lean mass has increased by 2% in a group of people with most of these methods of assessing body composition, they'd say, oh yeah, like body fat percentage decreased by some number between about three and 7%. Lean mass increased by some number between about 2 and 4%. Like, there there can still be some small group-level errors, but they tend to be, like, 2 or 3% at most. So, like, for research purposes, most of these methods work quite well. Some of them work better than others. Like, for example, DEXA is just categorically better than BIA. Um, but, you know, for assessing groups of people, they all get the job done. The question is more about, I assume... Well, you know, dear listener, it's worth asking yourself this are you a a person or are you a group of people? If you're a group of people you can you can just uh skip ahead to Eric's segment. if you're a single person, then it's worth asking like, hey, does the relative accuracy of these body comp devices apply to me uh like what what are the sorts of errors that I can expect when I have my own personal Uh, body composition assessed. And uh, my basic position and what I hope to convince you of is that for an individual, most of these methods for assessing body composition are, if not entirely worthless, far less informative than I think people naturally assume. And I I think that comes from Uh, essentially conflating group errors and average errors with like individual errors so for example if you're looking at research on say DEXA you will find that the just the mean error for a DEXA assessment of lean mass or body fat mass or body fat percentage compared to a gold standard measure which is usually some some sort of four compartment model um the average error is generally like less than 2%. It's generally like one, like between 0 and 2%, give or take. So like essentially, if the group level average with a four-compartment model is like 18% body fat, DEXA might say it's 19.5% or something like that. So some people look that look at that and say, oh well, DEXA overestimates body fat percentage by 1.5%. So if I get a DEXA done and it says I'm 14%, I know to I know that that means I'm like 15 and a half percent, but boom, like it's it's that precise number. If the mean overestimate is 1.5 percent, that means my personal overestimate will be exactly 1.5 percent. Add that on, boom, good to go. Uh, or people might look at things like uh, like average absolute error or typical error, um, which for Dexa, for example, is like two and a half three percent. Uh, and that's that's like a plus or minus. So for example, if if there's two people and DEXA overestimates body fat percentage by two and a half percent for one of them, underestimates by two and a half percent for the other, the average error is zero percent. The average absolute error is two and a half percent. So slightly savvier people will, will look at that and be like, oh, like the average absolute error, two and a half, three percent. So if DEXA says I'm 15% body fat, that means I'm somewhere between like 12 and 18% body fat, which is a bit of a range, like people might interpret 12 and 18 to be considerably different. But you know, that that is still like a somewhat tight range. And and they look at that and say, Oh, just plus or minus the average absolute error. Um, Boom, good to go. Uh, Relatively tight range. However, I think that if you're an individual, uh, again, like if the average absolute error is three percent or something there are going to be errors for individuals that are smaller than three percent which therefore means if the average is three percent there also have to be errors considerably greater than three uh, percent and so I think that if you're an individual it's worth asking what what is the largest error that I could get from a particular method of body comp assessment and if you want to be slightly more charitable like what is the magnitude of error that I at least have like a decent chance of getting, you know, like a 20-25% chance of getting an error of at least this large. So uh, to to illustrate this point, I I made some synthetic data that like mimics the accuracy of of DEXA very well. So like with DEXA, the average uh, the average group errors are pretty small, like generally less than two percent. The average absolute errors tend to be like two and a half, three percent. So I, I made a, a pretty little scatter plot that conforms to those those specifications, where the average uh, the average error between actual body fat percentage and an estimated body fat percentage is only half a percent, and the average absolute error is 2.7 percent. So if if you're watching on YouTube, you can you can see the scatter plot here. With a nice little regression line running through it you can see it's a nice tight relationship Uh, the r value like describing the strength of the correlation is around 0.9 which again is around what you see for high quality methods of body comp assessment like for example dexa Uh, and, and you might look at this and say like hey you know if if this is representative of the accuracy of dexa scans i feel pretty good about that like it seems to track Pretty well with people's actual body fat percentage, but now again, if you're watching on YouTube, we'll uh, we'll throw a a histogram up here showing the frequency of uh, estimation errors of different magnitudes. And so, a lot of people are are going to be getting pretty small errors, like less than one and a half percent. So, you know, for a non-trivial amount of people, if Dexa says like, "Hey, you're 19% body fat." you know, you might be 20, you might be 18, but like it's it's going to be pretty close. But then there are also like a pretty large number of people with errors in the 3 to 6% range, like larger, but not like way, way larger than the average absolute error, where if you're getting up to 6%, that means Dex is saying you're 20% body fat anywhere from like 14 to 26%, which like I think you could figure that out pretty easily without going in for a DEXA scan, and then for like a, a decent number of folks, like in excess of 10% of individuals, you're going to get errors larger than 6% up to about 10 and a half percent. Which, you know, when, once you're dealing with individual errors in excess of 10%, that's just a roll of the dice. That's a random number generator uh, and is is almost entirely uninformative. Um so like that the, these are the types of individual errors that that we're looking at um when as, when assessing how useful body composition estimates are for individuals I think it's just like kind of a rough rule of thumb if the average absolute error like whatever it's reported to be there's a a pretty decent chance like you know like a better than 20% chance that the actual error that you see Um, or that you could get uh, from your body composition assessment is like twice as large as that so if you see that uh you know the average absolute error for hydrostatic weighing like let's say it's four percent or something like that that means there's a pretty decent chance that you could get errors up to about eight percent even though the largest possible errors would be even larger than that so uh just as just to kind of like ground us here and i'll note that that this kind of simulation was to illustrate the sorts of errors you could see for assessing body composition at a single point in time. This same principle applies to assessing changes over time as well. So like if a particular method of body comp uh, analysis says that your body fat percentage decreased by 8%, but the average absolute error tends to be of like a similar magnitude. So like that decrease of 8% could be anything from like a decrease of 2% to a decrease of 14%. Like it's it's the same type of range. Like th- this is a generalizable principle. Um so like here's here's one little illustration to um just like hammer home this point with with uh like like an, an illustration that I think will just like make intuitive sense to people. So uh let's say you recently completed a diet. You started at a body mass of 100 kilograms, about 220 pounds, and you cut down to 80 kilograms, or about 175 pounds. And you got DEXA scans done before and after your diet. And DEXA said you went from 30% body fat to 20% body fat. So ultimately, what we're asking here for like the usefulness of body composition assessments is like What can you do with that information? How should you interpret it? Um, You know, can you use that to say that your diet was relatively successful or not? So if you take those numbers at face value and just assume that like DEXA has zero error for estimating body composition, uh, those numbers would imply that over the course of the diet, you lost about 14 kilograms of fat mass and about six kilograms of lean mass. And I would say for most people, that's kind of an ambiguous outcome. Like, that's certainly a lot of fat to lose. Your body fat percentage decreased by 10%. But if you're you're someone who does resistance training, like, you probably worked pretty hard to gain those six kilos of lean mass in the first place. And that might feel like quite a lot of lean mass to lose over the course of the diet. So, you know, that's kind of a mixed bag. But then let's assume very optimistically that the individual errors produced by these DEXA scans are up to about 5%, which like that's an incredibly charitable assumption. So if we look at it through that lens, uh, instead of your body fat percentage decreasing by exactly 10%, it may have decreased by up to 15% or by only 5%. If it decreased by 15%, from say 30% to 15% body fat, That would mean that you lost 18 kilos of fat and only two kilos of lean mass which i think most people would interpret as a virtually unqualified success like you preserved virtually all of your lean mass lost a ton of fat i think almost anyone would be very very happy with that outcome Uh, but if the if dexa underestimated your loss of body fat percentage uh, and it only went down by five percent that would imply that as you lost 20 kilos you lost 10 kilos of fat and 10 kilos of lean mass, which I think most people who who are engaging in resistance training are interested in preserving lean mass, et cetera. I think most people would interpret that as like basically a catastrophic failure. So essentially, like if, if this scenario played out, you lost 20 kilos, Dexa said your body fat percentage went down 10%, even with like a very charitable assumption about the sorts of individual errors you can get from DEXA scans, essentially what it would be telling you is that the outcome of your diet was somewhere between unambiguously good and catastrophically bad, which I think you could figure out without going in for those DEXA scans. Like that's essentially like the entire range of body comp changes you could have seen, uh, are compatible with those DEXA scans you got. Um, So yeah, like it's, it's, I I think just far less informative, far less precise produces far larger individual level errors than I think most people realize.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've had clients in the past who, uh, have said, Hey, how often do you think I should get my body comp tested? And I say never. And they say, well, there's this Dexa place in town. Do you think I should go? And I say, no, uh, unless you're really interested in learning more about your bone density, in which case a DEXA c- could be nice for that. But yeah, th- there have been so many instances where I'll, I'll talk with a client and say like, you know, best case scenario, this scan is going to tell us what we already knew. Worst case scenario, it's going to be way off and we're going to go with what we already know to be true anyway. And just yeah. say,
1: wow, that was a crappy scan. Yeah. And and so within that context, it's it's kind of hard to justify no, I I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think for most people, most of the time, getting your body comp assessed, like even via DEXA is less informative, like tells you less explicit information about how a bulk went or how a cut went than just like seeing how you look in the mirror, assessing how your clothes fit, feeling how you perform in the gym. Like, <laughs> I just think those things, for most people, most of the time, tell you more about the relative success of a bulk or a cut than any method of body comp would be able to for sure uh so moving on i also want to briefly touch upon an issue with bia that i think a lot of people aren't aware of like so folks with smart scales that like if you stand on them for long enough they'll uh give you an estimate of your body composition day to day there's this assumption that I've seen repeated multiple times, like by by a lot of folks in a lot of contexts. That like, yeah, yeah. Like I I understand that each one of those measurements could have tremendous error. It could be way overestimating or way underestimating my body fat percentage. But the changes over time, especially if we trend them out, should be reliably predictive of what is actually happening happening with my body composition. So. You know, if, uh, if like, maybe I'm actually 20% body fat, but my scale says I'm 35% body fat. Like, there's a huge error. Ultimately, that's fine, because if I get down to 10%, my scale will say that I've gotten down to 25%. And I know I'm not 25% body fat, but it, it should accurately reflect over time that my body fat percentage decreased by 10%. Like, that's that's, like, an assumption that I think a lot of people have, Um, but like, that's not a good assumption to make in a lot of contexts, uh, in, in part because of, of how BIA actually measures what's going on. So, uh, as I mentioned before, essentially what BIA is measuring is the impedance of electrical currents and lean mass impedes electrical currents less than fat mass does, but it does still impede those electrical currents. So if you have simply more tissue, even if your body composition hasn't changed, DEXA will think you've gained body fat. Uh, and if you like, if you lose a lot of tissue again, even if your body composition hasn't changed, DEXA will now think you're leaner. Like that, that's just how those measurements work. Um, and so like, for example, if you had an astoundingly successful, uh, like uh what do people say now gain gain or main gain what whatever <laughs> I it don't know it doesn't matter if if you if you have, if you have a nice lean bulk and let's say man, it went better than you could have even conceived of, like maybe you're a new lifter and you put on ten kilos of muscle in your first year of lifting without your body fat percentage changing at all you go from like 70 kilos at 15% body fat to 80 kilos at 15% body fat. You just put on a ton of muscle. Your BIA scale would say you got fatter. Like, and you simply didn't. But now, like, your legs are more muscular. There is more tissue. That tissue will impede the electrical current. Your scale is passing through your legs to a greater extent than than they did before training. So, like, the the issue with BIA... Or or like, I mean, there are tons of issues with BIA, but like an underappreciated issue of BIA is the fact that it is sensitive, not just to changes in body composition, but to changes in total mass, um, to, to an extent that I think people just like don't realize. So if you're, if you're using like a smart scale to track changes in body composition over time, the problem is that the information it's giving you can be, like, not just uninformative, but, like, actively misinformative over time in some contexts. Where, like, you could be getting leaner, but it says you're getting fatter. It says you're getting fatter, but you're actually getting leaner because, like, total tissue mass is increasing enough. So, like, even for purposes of, like, tracking changes over time, trending it out, uh, like, BIA scales can be, like fully and actively just misinformative over pretty long time scales. So, uh, moving on, I think that, um, I think that it's worth taking a step back and just asking ourselves, like, why, why you would want to assess body composition in the first place? And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, some percentage of listeners at this point feel slightly slightly unmoored and adrift because you know they've they've had their body composition assessed multiple times in the past they they have previously put a lot of value on those numbers they get from those assessments and they feel like well i i was doing this because it's important like i need to know this information to know how my pursuit of my goals is going like you know th- like how how else am i supposed to know how well my last bulk went, how well my last cut went. Um, you know, maybe I'm trying to lose body fat to uh be better at whatever sport I compete in. Like I need to be able to measure my body fat percentage to know if that's going well. Um and I would I would like to push back against that impulse. Like I think if we acknowledge that we really can't know our body composition. All that accurately or precisely on an individual level. Um, I don't think we actually lose anything because I think more often than not, most people don't actually care about body composition goals that much. They they just assume, sometimes quite accurately, that changes in body composition should be predictive of or associated with the actual changes they're wanting to see. Um, but but I, I would argue that most of the time you can assess like a more direct measure for the outcome you're interested in than body comp would give you. So like, for example, if you're an athlete and you want to maintain muscle mass while losing fat for the purpose of improving performance in your sport, um, you know, you might think, well, I, sh- I should get my body comp assessed pre and post off-season training to see if I actually did that. But the thing to keep in mind is like, you're doing it for the purpose of improving performance in your sport. And generally, there are going to be tests you can do to see, am I performing better in my sport? Uh, Or are there like proxy measures for performance in my sport that are just way more directly informative than body comp assessments? So, you know, for for most like team sports, field sports, like, are you faster? Can you jump higher? Is your change of direction performance better? Uh, Or just like, you know, like, let's say you're playing basketball, like, if you're running scrimmages or pickup games, like, are you getting more buckets? Are you getting more rebounds? Like, that tells you how your performance is doing. And also, like, you could lead yourself astray by potentially focusing on this proxy measure for performance, body comp, instead of performance itself. So, for example, like, if your training volume is quite high uh, and you're really attempting to shed body fat... You could just spend an entire off-season under-fueling yourselves for workouts and practices um, and, you know, successfully lose the body fat you are wanting to, but wind up performing worse, like, (laughs) because you weren't actually able to train for your sport the way you need to. Um, So yeah, like, I I would argue that in most of those contexts, like, even if your goal is like even if like a sub goal is to try to change your body composition for improving performance in your sport if your performance improves it doesn't matter quite as much if your body comp actually changed and it's very likely your body comp could change but that could still be counterproductive because of what you had to do to accomplish those changes so yeah i would i would argue that in a situation like that you're better off just assessing sport performance and seeing if that is improving um another example like a lot of people who are very interested in assessing their body comp with, with a high degree of frequency and regularity are primarily interested in aesthetics. Like, they're trying to build muscle, lose fat, achieve a certain physique, a certain look. Uh, and so, you know, they, they want to get DEXA scans every six months, every quarter to see how that is going. But I would argue that for those folks, like, your goal is aesthetics. Like, take progress pictures, look at yourself in the mirror from time to time. Uh, and like, if you look bigger and you look leaner, um, does it really matter if a DEXA scan says you gained two kilos versus three and a half kilos of lean mass, or if you lost 2% versus 4% body fat? Like, I, I don't like if, if your goal is ultimately an aesthetic goal, like aesthetics are about how you look, assess how you look like that's, much more direct feedback about how the pursuit of your goal is going than a DEXA scan will give you. And I think part of that is also just
0: uh, almost a linguistic or communication issue. Like people use a body fat percentage value as a shorthand way of conveying a particular physique look, Mm -hmm. like broadly. So, you know, someone with a cut might say, I want to get down to 9 or 10% body fat. And you can kind of piece together what that generally means and say, okay, yeah, I know what you have in mind. Yeah. Or they might say, I, no, I want to be bodybuilding competition ready. We got to get down to 5%. The reality is neither of those, of those people actually care what their true genuine body fat percentage is, or they shouldn't. What, what they're really trying to do is just give a kind of shorthand summary of here's the kind of leanness that I have in mind. But ultimately, I mean, trying to find a device to give you that number is not the goal. The goal is to achieve a particular look. And the easiest way to try to summarize that concisely is by throwing a number on it just
1: for Uh, communication purposes right like they 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 want to look the way that they believe people look when those people are at nine percent body fat exactly whether or not the the look they want to achieve does actually comport with nine percent body fat or whether or not they actually achieve nine percent body fat doesn't matter like they're yeah it's it's the look that they're after yeah um or, or just for like one final example um you know, let's say that it's, it's not about sports, it's not about aesthetics or anything like that. You, you really are just trying to, to change or improve your body composition for the goal of health or graceful aging. Like you want to lose some fat to reduce your risk of heart disease. You're trying to build some muscle or lean mass for, you know, graceful aging, less risk of like osteoporosis uh, more independence, fewer issues with activities of daily living as you get older, etc. Like, in a situation like that, once again, ultimately, like, changing body comp isn't the goal. I- improving your health and your function is the goal. So, you know, ultimately, if, like, it, it doesn't matter if some method of assessing body comp says you lost four kilos of fat versus eight kilos of fat. If your blood pressure is improving, your blood lipids are improving, like, more direct markers for like cardiovascular health you're accomplishing your goal you know like um and similarly with like performance you know you can you can just assess performance you know like <laughs> if you're trying to build or maintain strength for graceful aging like you can you can get on the same machine at the gym multiple times and like if you can now use more weight or do more reps like, cool, you're accomplishing your goal. Like, your your musculoskeletal performance is improving or you're maintaining it, like, whatever you're trying to accomplish. So, like, the, the argument I'm making here is that very, very rarely are changes in body comp the actual goal someone is pursuing. Um, more often than not, changes in body composition are assumed to be, and and often actually are, uh, assumed to be associated with the goal someone is pursuing or predictive of the goal that someone is pursuing. And more often than not, you can assess something more closely related to the actual goal you're pursuing with more accuracy and precision than you can assess body comp in the first place. So even if we acknowledge that we can't assess individual level body comp with a, a high or even I would consider an acceptable degree of accuracy or precision, we don't actually lose anything because most of the time that's not what you actually care about in the first place. So uh, yeah, just to wrap up, body comp assessments work really well for groups, don't work that well for individuals, Um, but that's fine actually. Yeah. So things people can track, obviously
0: track your body weight uh objective performance outcomes, you know, cardiometabolic depending on what your goal is, there are many things you can track. But even for people who are more physique focused, you can track your body weight, you can, you know, keep an eye on the mirror, keep, you know, keep
1: taking progress pictures. Limb uh, circumferences. Yeah, observe how your your clothing fits. Or I mean like for for physique related goals, like I think that that calipers are great. Mm Because I mean all ultimately the thing that's going to affect the The visual assessment of leanness is just like how little subcutaneous fat do you have yeah. like if you don't have much you're going to look very shredded, and calipers will tell you that, yeah, so you know if if you get a caliper assessment done, whatever body fat number is spat out when you run those numbers through a prediction equation doesn't matter, but like you know if your sum of skin folds has gone down from like. 100 millimeters to like 70 millimeters regardless of what percent change in body fat that corresponds with that that is a direct measure of hey you have less subcutaneous fat than you had before and you probably look more shredded yeah i
0: i was gonna say i think you can go a really long way if you're like you know what i accept the content of this segment but i still really like uh having some objective quantitative things i can track I think you can go a very long way with a super cheap tape measure and a cheap pair of calipers. And I know everyone, you know, like in the exercise science world likes to say, you basically have to be a magician to be good at caliper tests. I mean, for research grade purposes, sure, fine. But if you're just trying to figure out, do I have more or less fat over my bicep than I used to? there's youtube videos that can teach you the ropes when it comes to using calipers you can do it depending on the site maybe yourself maybe get a friend or someone to do it for you but just by taking a tape measure getting a waist measurement getting limb circumferences getting some key caliper measurements you can get a pretty good idea of what is for example the total size of my bicep looking at the circumference or i guess my upper arm and then look at the subcutaneous fat thickness there's no need to convert that to a whole body fat percentage. Uh, that information tells you exactly what you're trying to get. And you don't have to stress over, you know, aiming for these kind of arbitrary targets like, oh, no, I, I'm doing everything I hope to do, but I wanted to be 6% body fat. Like, I think keeping your, your sites on more localized measurements is yeah. probably ideal.
1: No, I, I agree. And I would also add that if you're primarily interested in assessing body comp for like health-related purposes like ultimately a waist circumference measurement or like a, a waist to height ratio again not taking a waist to height ratio and converting that to a body fat number but just the actual weight to height ratio number itself that or again just waist circumference that That's more predictive of cardiometabolic health outcomes than just, like, body fat percentages, in part because, like, as far as health risks go, not all fat is created equal. Like, you can have a considerable amount of subcutaneous fat without that having too much of an impact on cardiometabolic health risks, but, like, having a lot of visceral fat, not great. Uh, and where's visceral fat stored? In your abdomen, around your waist. So you know, uh, if, if you had two individuals and you could like perfectly measure their body fat percentage and one's 20% body fat with a ton of visceral fat. And one of them's 27% body fat with a lot of subcutaneous fat and very little visceral fat. Like the person at 27% body fat is probably in in better shape as far as like health risks go than the technically leaner person with more visceral fat. But the leaner person with more visceral fat will probably have a larger waist circumference, whereas the other person would probably have, like maybe, a larger hip circumference or thigh circumference or something like that. So, yeah, for for a like a rough assessment of body comp for health-related purposes, just like a, a waist circumference works great. And again, like just take the circumference number. You don't need to worry about converting that to uh, like a, a rough body fat percentage number. Like like that that doesn't add any additional like, useful or beneficial information. Cool. Sounds good. All right. You ready to move on? Yes, sir. All right.
0: Uh, So for my segment in this episode, I'm going to be talking about fitness-related applications of mindfulness and meditation. I'm going to keep this one pretty brief and pretty snappy because for the first time ever, you actually went a little bit longer than you planned to.
1: Jesus fucking Christ. I... (laughs) I really, I thought I was a good boy this time around. Uh, not quite, Jesus. Um, but that's okay. Yeah, I, I just, I just checked the timestamp. <laughs> oh no! Um, all right,
0: that's so, fine. so diving into it though, uh, we previously had a segment called "The Road to Enlightenment," and that was me uh, kind of sharing my experience as I was getting into Buddhism and mindfulness and meditation. The only issue is that it was a fatally flawed segment didn't last very long, and it was promptly canceled. Uh, The reason being, uh, as I got deeper into it, I realized it's going to take me some time to really get the hang of this and develop anything that would be reminiscent of not even expertise, but just proficiency, right? And so I was like, well, it's not going to be fun or entertaining or informative
1: for me to just come in every week and say, Hey, I meditated a few times this past week, seemed to be fine. Well, and if the segment went too well, eventually you'd find yourself backed into a corner where you basically had to flex about how enlightened you were getting, which seems like it would defeat the point. Yeah. I mean, there's a (laughs) lot of ways it could have gone, but literally none of them were good. Yeah.
0: Right. But the good thing is we saw that before it went any of those directions and promptly canceled it. But I knew... That eventually i'd want to return with a more substantive segment or multiple segments over you know over the years uh, about mindfulness and meditation uh basically when i have something useful to say now uh in recent months a month or two ago i did a i wrote an article in the mass research review about mindfulness and a few key applications uh that might be of interest to fitness enthusiasts uh so I wanted to share a little glimpse into not my personal experience necessarily with mindfulness and meditation, but I wanted to, to actually take a look at some of the research that's out there. And uh, I know what you're thinking, how much research could they, there possibly be? You know, it seems like there's a lot of anecdote about this, but you might not have heard too much about, you know, actual scientific research. I'll be honest, I knew that it was studied in some areas, you know, different types of mindfulness-based interventions and meditation interventions. I fully and grossly underestimated the sheer quantity of research pertaining to mindfulness. Uh, So I found a systematic review by Goldberg and colleagues, and in the systematic review, they found 44 separate meta-analyses about mindfulness-based interventions, now, that's not 44 separate studies, that's 44 separate meta-analyses. Within that, there were 336 randomized controlled trials with a total participant pool of over 30,000 participants. So like, you know, we're out here talking about betaine, and you can find like six relevant studies. Meanwhile, mindfulness out here, you know, 30,000 participants cumulative. So there is a, a really considerable amount of mindfulness and meditation-related research That is spread across many different fields investigating many different clinical outcomes of interest so um, what i want to focus on in this segment is just a few key areas that fitness folks might be interested in specifically training performance sleep pain management and eating behaviors so before we get into the super applied stuff or dig into specific studies i want to cover the basics and and of course i want to address a caveat that still exists I'm still a novice in the area of studying mindfulness, meditation, and Buddhism. Uh, I no longer claim to be, I no longer put the big secular Buddhism tag on it. Uh, I I started uh, going to a sangha locally. So every week I I have a meditation group where we study Buddhism and we meditate together. So I do consider myself to be a practicing Buddhist uh, in the Vietnamese Zen Buddhism tradition. And, uh, you know, I used to always put the secular tag on it, but... The deeper i get into this particular lineage of buddhism i just haven't found anything that strains uh my beliefs or like brings me into a metaphysical realm where i'm
1: just like ah, it doesn't really make sense so well it, is that because the particular school of buddhism you subscribe to is inherently secular it is it is a
0: pretty secular interpretation of it yeah mm-hmm. I mean, but you know I've, I've talked to a lot of folks and from what I gather, again, novice, not an expert, uh, someone's going to come dunk on me on the internet, I'm sorry. From what I can gather from a lot of different uh, Zen lineages that I've seen, it seems like they do tend to be pretty secular by default. It's not like they're taking it and saying, well, let's, you know, repackage this and make it more secular. That just seems to be kind of the the common approach in a lot of different uh, traditions and lineages of Zen Buddhism is that, uh, you know, th- there's... Uh, there's just not a big focus on the elements of what we might consider religious in nature. So not a lot of metaphysical stuff, not a lot of dogmatic stuff, not a lot of uh, attachment to various rituals and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it does, you know, from from a Western perspective, you know, growing up, it, it, from my perspective, it does seem to be a lot more secular in nature than than I had anticipated or expected. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I'm currently... Uh, you know, practicing in the kind of Vietnamese Zen Buddhism tradition and really enjoying it. But the, the big caveat here is, you know, I'm still a novice. I'll I'll know way more about this stuff in six months and I'll know way more about it in six years. So I'm just kind of presenting the evidence here uh, to the best of my ability. But first, I want to start out with... Uh, yeah, you're highlighting the quote that I have there. I'm just curious who that quote's from. Oh, hell It yeah. was Rumsfeld. So the, the, the smart-ass quote that I put in the outline and almost skipped, but now I have to say, talking about how I don't have all the knowledge I'd like to have, and in many years I'll know a lot more about this stuff than I do now, the quote was, you go, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish you had at a later time. And that is Donald Rumsfeld, who has never been convic- convicted of a war crime.
1: Uh, yeah, we, we should, we should move on before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> okay. So I want to start out with some definitions, right? So
0: number one, quick description of mindfulness, because a lot of people, when they hear about it, it, it is a term where they say, but what does that mean? Mindfulness of, of what, right? Because a lot of times in just common speech, we'll say, Hey, make sure you're, you're mindful of blank. So, uh, a really good basic definition that goes around a lot, mindfulness, is awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So, a lot of different mindfulness-based practices involve basically bringing your attention to the present moment very intentionally, and just kind of observing your experience without passing judgment, uh, just kind of calmly observing. And I, I mentioned a lot of times people say, mindfulness of what? And that's a very good question. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a, a, a Zen master, uh, a monk in the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist tradition. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh often says mindfulness is always mindfulness of something. So you might be sitting and, and doing a mindfulness uh, exercise, and you might be mindful of your breath. Focusing on your breath, that's a very common thing in various types of meditation. Uh, you might be mindful of what you're eating. Right. So mindful eating is a common uh, intervention that we see in the nutrition literature. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's taking time to be present during that meal and really immersing yourself uh, in that that meal experience and bringing all of your focus and attention to it. Um, And so, yeah, you could be mindfulness of a lot of different things. Uh, Sometimes they'll they'll do what you call a body scan meditation where you lay down and you work through, you know, from your feet to your head or, or vice versa. Uh, and you're just focusing very intently on my feet. What am I what sensations am I feeling in my feet currently? And you think about relaxing the muscles in your feet. You work up to your your calves, your thighs. you know you kind of work all the way up, and you're being mindful of a particular part of your body, just observing your sensations, not judging them, you know, not trying to force them to be any specific way. It's just simply paying attention. and, a lot of times when you are able to achieve some sense of mindfulness and you're doing it intentionally, it can bring a sense of calmness and clarity and stability to one's mind, uh, which brings me to meditation. Uh, so Thich Han often says that meditation has two components, stopping and looking deeply. But but ultimately, it depends on the type of meditation that you're doing. So uh, meditation takes a lot of different forms. It is probably the most common mindfulness-based intervention of many uh you know so for example some people consider different types of yoga to be a mindfulness-based intervention when done a certain way uh but but i saw a link a really nice link from headspace which is an app i don't know a lot about the app but they talk about different types of meditation and so for example there's guided versus unguided meditation there's calming versus insight meditation so a lot of times people think meditation necessarily implies that you are really focused on contemplating about some major topic and you're trying to, you know, have some kind of epiphany. Sometimes there are meditation practices that are simply there for calming, you know, just to kind of let your mind rest and to calm down and relax. Sometimes you do insight-focused meditations where you actually will calm your mind first just to make sure that you have, you know, appropriate levels of focus and concentration uh, and, and kind of just bring that stability to your mind. And then you might start to contemplate a, a, on you know something that you would kind of plan to think about and get some insight on beforehand. So there might be something big in your life or a big topic that you want to really think about and, and, and contemplate about and get some insight. So there are different ways to do meditation. Uh, some, some ones that come to mind, like I said, body scan, different types of visualization, um, you know, reflection. Uh, sometimes people chant mantras, sometimes people do yoga. There are a ton of different types of meditation, uh, but generally uh, many of them involve calming your mind and then bringing your attention, bringing mindfulness to some object of meditation, whether it's just calming your mind, focusing on your breath, focusing on the sound of a bell or, or some kind of calm music. There's a lot of different ways to do it. So with that out of the way, the question is, what can mindfulness based practices or interventions actually do for fitness enthusiasts? And I'm going to talk about a few different areas of research. And in the interest of time, I'm going to kind of go pretty superficial, high level with them and rather than getting really into details. But I will uh, put a lot of references to mostly systematic reviews and meta analyses so people can dig a little bit deeper if they wish to. But the reason that this topic came up in mass was because there was a new study. Uh, a new systematic review on mindfulness and mental fatigue. Now, I wanted to cover this because mindfulness, uh, you know, certainly interests me, uh, but also because uh, Mike Zordos, Dr. Zordos, has written a few articles over the last few years about mental fatigue. And uh, research indicates that when people are mentally kind of acutely fatigued going into a workout, it can negatively affect their resistance training performance. And so... What that means is, you know, in a laboratory setting, for example, they might bring people in and say, hey, do these kind of kind of tricky math problems, but do them quickly and understand that you have to get them right. You know, they put a time pressure, they put an accuracy pressure, it's cognitively demanding, and they say, do all these math problems as fast as you can go. And when people do that, they get mentally fatigued. And that type of mentally draining exercise, when done with enough volume, essentially, can carry over into a training session and interfere with your performance even something as simple as looking at a a smartphone between sets i think in in one of the uh in one of the studies uh, there was just enough going on in the phone uh that that it was enough to kind of derail people and, and cause some degree of acute mental fatigue
1: yeah like like before the testing session i think like one group just sat quietly for 30 minutes and then the other group just like scrolled social media for 30 minutes and uh yeah. People scrolling social media were fatigued. Yeah. And so, yeah, that wasn't between sets, but that is something that came
0: up in the interpretation is like, it's one of the most common things to do between sets these days is kind of pop open your phone and mess around and, and yeah, could potentially contribute to some, some acute mental fatigue. Um, you know, other things that they'll do sometimes in lab settings is like memory tasks. And again, the whole idea is to get your mind, uh, really riled up get you thinking about things that are cognitively demanding and often putting some kind of pressure with regards to time or accuracy or just adding complexity putting a bunch of information in your head and saying hey you need to retain this stuff um so mental fatigue not a good thing for acute performance and what they were looking at uh this was a a systematic review by cow and colleagues cao probably pronouncing that wrong uh, but they were looking at studies using mindfulness-based interventions to try to uh, facilitate recovery from acute mental fatigue. Uh, so they were looking at interventions, a variety of different mindfulness-based interventions, uh, comparing it to uh, you know, you know, some kind of non-mindfulness-based intervention with some possibility of inducing acute mental fatigue, and basically figuring, trying to figure out, does this mindfulness-type exercise? Um, facilitate you know recovery from this acute mental fatigue not going to bore people with the details but i will pop a couple things up on the screen here so right now you can look at table two if you're watching on youtube just kind of an overview of the different uh interventions that were used to induce mental fatigue in the eight studies that qualified for this systematic review Uh, now and you can of course pause that if you want to dig into the details i'll put the the high res stuff up on the screen And now looking at table three, it's just an overview of the different mindfulness-based interventions. And that sounds like a vague term, but they wanted to cast a broad enough net. So we're talking about meditation, audio instruction that kind of walks you through a mindfulness exercise, Um, you know, a lot of stuff like, you know, guided meditation, things like that. Those are the types of interventions going on here. And generally speaking, they were pretty short in duration. You know, a lot of them were only 5, 10, 15 minutes or so, um, and results painting with a a very broad brush here, given a a basic overview, results were generally pretty favorable, indicating that some of these mindfulness-based interventions did facilitate recovery from mental fatigue, uh, and in some cases led to improvements in psychological and physical performance outcomes. Um, And and I think, you know, if you're interested in digging deeper, of course, there's the Mass article, there is the, the full text of this article, Um, You know, there are some caveats, you know, the benefits likely will depend on sufficient experience, uh, intervention quality, duration of intervention, and and there can be a lot of variation from person to person. So I don't want to make it seem like all mindfulness-based interventions are equivalent in terms of effectiveness, nor do I want to make it seem like it's the perfect intervention for everybody. But broadly speaking, the results were pretty favorable, and I think that this does have plenty of face validity, you know, so if we look at acute mental fatigue and say, what is the problem here? And a lot of times it's, we're asking our mind to do a lot of pretty heavy lifting cognitively or doing some multitasking, trying to rush through things, do some cognitive challenges and and kind of keep a lot of different plates spinning at once.
1: Yeah. Like if you're, if you're going to the gym after work and like you got to drive through rush hour traffic and like, you know, people honking, there's like accidents on the side of the road. Like you, it takes a lot of mental effort to stay, to stay like mentally engaged and and just get to the gym, uh, safely. And so like it, it it might make sense to just kind of like take a second and and take a quick breather in the parking lot before you go in.
0: Yeah. And and that's, what's really encouraging about the, the specific interventions is that many of them were only 10 or 15 minutes long. And we probably do like, I would imagine, uh, I don't, we have weird jobs. I, I don't know how much we can generalize our experience to others, but like when I finish work for the day, there's usually a big push to the finish line. And almost always, I have like a minute where I'm like, I need to kind of recover. Like, I just did some mentally challenging stuff. Uh, I think a lot of people, after leaving from a full work day, making the commute over to the gym uh, or chasing the kids around the house, and then you finally get a moment where you can get out to the gym, uh, it's very common to enter the gym in a mentally fatigued state. Um, and so, for a lot of folks, I think. There's a lot of face validity here. If we think about the things that are used to experimentally induce mental fatigue, you can kind of think, well, what would be the opposite of that? And it's like, okay, focus on a single thing. Calmly, relax, focus on your breathing. As you focus on one thing, this is a lot of times people wonder, w- what is the purpose? Like you tell someone on the surface, focus on your breathing. It'll make you perform better. And it's like, what the hell do you mean? How can that possibly be the case? But what we're talking about here is, having a single-minded focus on something that's not cognitively demanding or challenging. There's no accuracy pressure, time pressure. It's basically giving your brain a bit of a rest with a calming exercise and saying, by focusing on one thing, the breath, which is very easy, or whatever the you know the instruction video or audio is telling you to focus on, by focusing on one thing with all of our attention, We fight our urge to focus on 700 things with really fragmented attention, and we're thinking about what we did two hours ago at work and what we have to do tonight when we get home. Uh, It can be a surprisingly restorative and restful thing. Um, Now, moving on, I'm going to hit some highlights here very briefly. Uh, Mindfulness and sleep. Let me just say this. Anecdotes are obviously the top form of evidence. I passed out listening to a guided meditation last night and I slept like a baby. It was incredible. Um, so sleep research, it's hard to do, but generally the consensus is if you're in this fitness, sleep probably ought to be important to you. Uh, you know, sleep restriction, especially chronically, is pretty bad for performance. Uh, seems to be pretty bad for training adaptations as well with the limited evidence that we have. Um, the challenge with sleep though is that we don't have a lot of control over the amount that we sleep. Like, you cannot consciously just say, tonight I will get nine hours of excellent sleep. You, you don't get to do that. Yeah. All you can really do is give yourself sleep opportunities uh, and couple that with sleep hygiene, right? So what you can say is, because I've been sleeping like shit, I'm going to spend eight hours in bed tonight and in the hours leading up to bed i'm going to try to practice good sleep hygiene and do everything i can behaviorally to set myself up for a high likelihood of getting high quality sleep tonight and the reason i bring that up is because if you look at the lists of sleep hygiene guidelines in a variety of different you know reputable resources you know foundations that really focus on sleep research or you know, practical interventions to facilitate people with sleep disorders or sleep issues. Um, You know, when you go to any of these big organizations or research groups that have sleep hygiene guidelines, it basically, it's going to come in one of two forms. One of them is going to describe meditation without calling it meditation. They're going to say like, hey, you know, maybe dim the lights and lay down or sit down and relax and, you know, just try to you know, calm yourself and maybe listen to a guided relaxation uh, thing. And they're just calling, they're just saying meditation without calling it that. Yeah. But most sleep hygiene guidelines will, sleep hygiene guidelines will just say, hey, do a meditation exercise before bed. Like it's a good way to kind of calm down, wind down, and, and get yourself in a place where you're really relaxed and able to sleep really well. Uh, and I have you ever tried this, by the way?
1: Yeah. So I, I was actually about to cut you off and and interject. Uh a bit of advice I was going to give is try to find a version of, of like meditating or mindfulness practice that, that clicks for you. Um, so I used to have like my, my sleep these days is great and I'm, I'm very uh, grateful about that. But back in the day I used to have some pretty major sleep issues uh, like, like borderline insomnia pretty frequently. I just, I just, lay in bed couldn't get my mind to stop racing just couldn't fall asleep uh when i was in college a hypnotist came to the school uh and and did like a little like hypnotism show in the auditorium um i still don't know the extent to which those are like real or fake like whether the students that they call up are like patsies i don't know there's a part of me that wants to believe but then there's a part of me that's just like if I was on that stage, I don't think I'd do half the ridiculous shit that these people do. So who knows? I'd whatever. But uh anyway, uh on the way out the door, he mentioned, like, hey, oh hey, in the lobby, like I'll have a little table set up. Um, and if you would like to buy like guided meditation uh CDs, uh, you can you can do that. And since I was having sleep issues, like one of them was for sleep, and I was like, okay, like I'll give this a shot. This sounds awesome. Uh, So I bought the CD and I tried to listen to it the first night and uh, got one of the worst experiences of my (laughs) life Uh, because so I'm I'm very much like a a princess in the P type individual when it comes to sleeping. Like if it's dark and cool and completely silent or just like white noise, whatever, I can sleep just fine. But if there's any, like, spoken word, any sort of, like, music, anything like that, I just I just can't fall asleep. And it just annoys the shit out of me. So, like, I had this CD on, and I was thinking, like, oh, well, like, maybe this is something different. And it gets, like, ten minutes in, and, like, I was just getting fucking pissed off.
0: It's just, like, there's some annoying person in the corner of your room just talking their
1: mouth off. Yeah. Like, would you shut up? Yeah, I was like, I'm trying to sleep. Shut the fuck up. Stop it. And, like, I was getting like legitimately heated i was like okay maybe this isn't for me yeah um but yeah so so to fall asleep now i do my own silent like uh, uh meditation practice which which is usually like it's it's not the kind of like meme version of just like counting sheep but just like some repetitive task that i find enjoyable i'll just like imagine myself doing that yeah um it's typically shooting free throws like, yeah, uh, someone is passing the ball back to me, shoot a free throw, get a ball, shoot a free throw, never taking my, my mind's eye off of the rim. Uh, and that usually puts me right out.
0: Yeah. And, and that's a great example. I mean, that's mindfulness of free throw visualiza- visualization, right? But it's something that is repetitive, not cognitively demanding, not something that's going to light up all your neurons, you know, the. You want to be looking at an fMRI and be like, whoa, there's a bunch of fireworks in the brain, right? I mean, it's it's just calming, repetitive, simple stuff that that isn't, uh, you know, cognitively challenging in any way. Uh, and that that's what you get with a lot of these kind of sleep-oriented, guided mindfulness or meditation exercises is, you know, focus on your breath, do a body scan, bring your mind to something that's very simple, something that's in the present moment, very, very straightforward. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously, you know, we don't just want to say, oh, hey, this sleep foundation says it's good. That's science enough for me. Or, you know, hey, here's an anecdote. I like doing this. It's fine. Um, I will put in the show notes uh, two different meta analyses indicating that uh, mindfulness meditation can have positive effects on sleep parameters, both in patients with insomnia, but also uh, in more of just the general population. One was more from like, workplace mindfulness trainings in people who were not uh, who did not have any kind of clinical sleep disruption. Uh, so a couple meta meta analyses pointing in the right direction and the workplace one um, you know it did improve their sleep but there's also improvements in uh, assessed mindfulness, which isn't surprising uh, but but there are improvements in stress, anxiety, psychological distress, and just overall well-being. so uh, a lot of things that, you kind of see these things go together, you know, calming your mind a few times throughout the day can kind of help you get re-centered and and kind of recapture some of that mental and emotional stability throughout the day. And then when you're sleeping better, it's a lot easier to manage stress well, manage anxiety well, uh, and ultimately feel like you have a lot better well-being throughout the day. I mean, I know for me personally, sleep disruption immediately, you know, my anxiety is worse. My ability to cope with strong emotions throughout the day is worse. You know, it, it really sets me up for a pretty tough time if I'm not sleeping well. Uh, moving on, uh, mindfulness for pain management. This is one of the areas of mindfulness research that's pretty active. Um, there's some pretty solid data in this area. Um, I don't want to belabor the point too much because we've talked about it on the show before and on other people's shows, um, but this, the biopsychosocial model of pain you know, back in the day, pain, the world was simpler, right? You, you have a, a little tiny pain receptor, and it's angry, and therefore you have pain, and that's the end of it. Uh, Good old
1: Cartesian dualism.
0: Yeah, that, that's not really how we do it anymore. Biopsychosocial model of pain is picked up a lot in the in the, the pain research, and that's kind of found its way into the fitness world. Uh, you know, the folks over at Barbell Medicine have done a lot of the work of kind of popularizing those ideas and it's for the better you know it's good that we have a a more nuanced understanding of pain within the fitness world um now one of the things that i find really interesting is that uh you know if you look at some of the peer-reviewed papers on uh, the biopsychosocial model of pain uh, many of these papers will posit that there are four key elements to consider with a pain experience there's nociception there's pain there's pain behaviors and there is suffering. So they actually explain suffering as being basically a type of emotional response to perceived pain, and they identify that as a specific kind of independent component of the pain experience. They also talk about pain behaviors, which is uh, essentially actions that people carry out in response to perceived pain, and these are things that are influenced by both subconscious uh, elements, but also just conditioned responses. Uh, so in, to some extent, we we are kind of experiencing these conditioned responses that have kind of been planted in our minds a little bit. So in the fitness world now, when people talk about the biopsychosocial model of pain and how we attra- how we approach pain among lifters, people talk a lot about pain narratives. And usually people are talking that talking about that in terms of how you discuss pain with a client or, or how a, a person would, would discuss pain with their health practitioner. So we talk about setting these pain narratives of just how pain is framed uh, because we don't want to plant these seeds where we are conditioning responses that exaggerate the pain or amplify the pain. We want to make sure that we are being really uh, mindful of the subjective elements of the pain experience that that can absolutely be influenced by the way we speak about it, the way we frame it, and that emotional element, that suffering element. And I, I couldn't get over the fact that, you know, by explicitly making suffering its own element, uh, it's it's kind of no surprise that mindfulness meditation being derived from Buddhism has a a pretty clear application there. You know, the four noble truths, uh often viewed as kind of the The foundational teaching in Buddhism. uh, uh, Traditionally, it's framed as being Buddha's uh, first teaching after achieving enlightenment, but it's about the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path that frees us from suffering, right? So suffering, kind of a big deal in in, in Buddhism, which is where we get mindfulness meditation practices from. Uh, So I I think there's obviously a pretty clear uh, link there, or a clear parallel, where you'd say, Okay, aside from just how we speak about injury with a coach or with a medical professional, we can also think about, you know, how might mindfulness meditation allow us to kind of explore some of these elements of pain? And, you know, no one is going to go out there and say, hey, pain's all in your head, and if you just become calm enough,
1: it'll go away, right? Well, some people do. Well, they shouldn't. I mean, the the folks who uh, learned about the biopsychosocial model, like two weeks ago yeah I, I think some of i think some of the what's the what's that saying like no one has more zeal than a new convert yeah uh, i i think i think some folks take it a little bit too far but yeah like like r- real practitioners tend to not do that
0: yeah yeah so you know i i think of course there are you know when, when it comes to how we actually act upon this biopsychosocial model like i said a lot of it has to do with how we speak about pain, how we interact with coaches and and health practitioners when we're talking about pain, but also, um, you know, there is an element here where we want to dig into these other elements of pain, right? So so not just the, you know, the nociceptive kind of biological root of pain, but also looking at the emotional element that we would call suffering in this case, Um, looking at some of those conditioned elements, and mindfulness meditation generally speaking if you were to boil it down it involves you know basically calming your mind uh de-centering yourself a little bit and taking an objective look at the situation whatever you happen to be contemplating about and separating you know some of the uh perceived elements from the 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 true stuff right so kind of figuring out how much is my perception distorting the, the way i see this experience or feel this experience and so uh you know i, I think there's definitely a, a clear avenue where you would say that mindfulness meditation exercises might have a valuable role here where you know the, the object of the mindfulness-based intervention would be your pain. And you would start to say, okay, this pain is real. I'm experiencing it. But is it possible that there are some emotional elements that are kind of amplifying the pain that I'm feeling? Is it possible that fear about the pain is amplifying the just general dread and anxiety associated with this pain experience? You can start to unravel uh, you know the kind of biological root of the pain from some of the emotional elements and psychological elements and conditioned elements that are really distorting your pain experience and in most cases amplifying it and making it turn into something that causes a lot of anxiety and fear that is related to the pain but not necessarily linked to the pain nece- you know, directly. You know you can separate those out, and a mindfulness type of of intervention might allow you to address. Some of those psychological and emotional elements, and basically remove some of their power a little bit, and yeah, the biological elements will will persist, but it might have a big impact on the subjective pain experience and without digging into a, you know a ton of different studies on it, what I'll probably do is just link some meta analyses in the show notes, like I said this literature is is developing pretty substantially here it's not like one or two little pilot studies there there are some meta-analyses that i can absolutely uh link in the show notes here but broadly speaking uh, it does look like a lot of these mindfulness mindfulness mindfulness-based interventions are uh pretty helpful in reducing self-reported pain levels uh you know in clinical populations who have chronic pain so there's meta-analyses by goldberg and colleagues and by hilton and colleagues where they've shown that some of these mindful mindfulness-based interventions are effective. Um, it not, it's not like it's a, a magic thing that's going to immediately turn the pain off, but it can alleviate some of those subjective pain symptoms. Uh, now, the final thing I want to mention here uh, very briefly, mindful eating. We've talked about it on the podcast before, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but I did want to make people aware of a good resource. There's a paper by, uh, the, it was a, a single author paper by Nelson, uh, and it, it provides the best um, description I've seen in the peer-reviewed literature about how you actually do mindful eating, you know, because um, some people are like, okay, so what? Just eat a meal and pay attention. Uh, it goes a little deeper than that, but that is kind of broadly what it is, right? Yeah. But it, it's about really taking your time with the meal, um, savoring the meal, uh, enjoying the meal, and focusing on the food, not in a way that connotes any type of guilt, uh, you know, not a, a deviation from fitness striving, but. It's about really enjoying the meal and enjoying the food for what it is and and, and enjoying the fact that you are having a pleasant eating experience, nourishing your body, giving it the the nutrients it needs. Um, So there's a great uh, paper, like I said, by Nelson linked in the show notes that actually talks you through what it would look like to try mindful eating. Um, A lot of people say, well, okay, well, does it work? And, And that really comes down to what you think it's supposed to do. So some people wonder often if mindful eating induces weight loss. And the evidence there is mixed. Um so I'll link a couple uh meta-analyses and systematic reviews again in the show notes. Uh generally speaking like I said there's some evidence indicating some interventions where mindful mindful eating does indirectly almost kind of unintentionally lead to some weight loss, but it's very mixed. Some studies show no real impact on weight loss, but most importantly that's really not the goal. you know you you don't do a mindful eating in infer- a mindful eating intervention and say, "All right, hopefully everybody loses twenty pounds here. That's really not the point point. Mm-hmm. and if weight loss occurs and sometimes it does, it's usually kind of a side effect. It's an indirect thing that that happens rather than the explicit outcome that has been sought uh, or the, the major outcome of interest. But when we look at other outcomes, uh, so for example, Catterman and colleagues. Uh, looked at mindful uh, mindful eating interventions, and they found that it led to reductions in binge eating and emotional eating in populations who were engaging in those behaviors. Uh, there was another systematic review uh, by you and colleagues where they found that mindful eating was associated with reductions in emotional eating, external eating, binge eating, weight and shape concern, uh, and there were also improvements related to self-acceptance and emotional regulation. Again, meta-analysis by Rogers and colleagues finding a whole bunch of favorable changes related to eating behaviors, depression, anxiety, eating attitudes. Um, so, generally speaking, we we see that mindful eating interventions have a lot of positive outcomes associated with them in, in you know meta-analyses and systematic reviews. But it's simply not explicitly a weight loss intervention. So, um, the the utility there is more on the psychological and behavioral side of eating, uh, and just trying to sort out. So, you know, sometimes people have some like borderline pathological eating attitudes and mindful eating interventions seem to be quite helpful with alleviating some of those symptoms. Um, now I want to get into some caveats here. Um, the very first thing I want to mention as a caveat is I've talked about some clinical outcomes here and studies that have been done in clinical patients. Whatever your interest is, uh, if you believe that you have a clinical condition that may warrant medical intervention or advice from a medical professional, don't don't avoid seeking that medical care because you're going to try to do mindfulness stuff instead. This stuff is not meant to re- replace modern medicine or anything like that. Um, you know, if you think you need some medical attention, or if you're on the fence and you're not sure, the best case scenario is go see a medical professional who's qualified. They'll let you know what you need. And if you see them and they say, you know what, you can can talk to them about it and say, I was thinking about maybe doing some mindfulness-based interventions to try to do this without getting into a really intense kind of medical uh, intervention. And maybe they'll be supportive of that, but don't use this stuff as a reason to delay medical care that might very well be necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another caveat is obviously I'm biased. Like I said, I I consider myself to be a practicing Buddhist uh, very early in that process, but uh, there's no question that I have bias here, which is frankly why I tried to make sure I was citing a lot of systematic reviews and meta-analyses because, of course— yeah, anyone with a bias can go say, oh, look at this pilot study in nine people. It looks pretty good. Um, so I wanted to, to rely on papers that utilize systematic literature searches rather than just kind of picking, you know, cherry picking this study or that study. Um, now, there are some nerds who are skeptical of the mindfulness literature, and I do think it's important to highlight that. So um, I, I say nerds in an endearing way. Um, there, there's something called the framework for open and reproducible, uh, research training, and they maintain a running list of psychological replications and reversals. You know, it's basically, uh, basically a result of the fact that a whole bunch of foundational psychology findings turned out to be unreliable and could not be replicated or reproduced. And so people have said, we need basically like a database to figure out, Of all the pillars of knowledge in our field, which of them actually support load, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and which ones are just like styrofoam pillars that don't actually do anything. Yeah. Um, Now, on this web page, they do include uh, mindfulness for mental health. uh, And and they say most studies are low quality and use inconsistent designs. There's higher heterogeneity than other mental health treatments. And there's strong reason to suspect reporting bias. Um now to be clear there are other elements on this web page where there are a- aggressive and just really obvious debunking of some of these theories that's not the case with mindfulness here uh, and it, and it is specific to mental health not all mindfulness outcomes um basically it's on their list of like hey there's a reason to be cautious here like let's keep an eye on this yeah um so it hasn't been like soundly debunked but there there are credible concerns about how reliable you know I mentioned there's a lot of randomized controlled trials people are saying you know what I appreciate that there's a lot of RCTs here but I wish that they were generally designed better and and we suspect that maybe there's some reporting bias that might be going on so it's important to point that out and to acknowledge
1: that yeah what what that suggests to me is that there probably or th- there there's a pretty good chance that there's a real effect but that the current research might overestimate the magnitude of the effect
0: i think that's a very plausible uh a very likely uh way to describe it yeah i I think and
1: you could you could say that about many things you know uh, i i think that's the case of just like research yeah yeah because generally nulls are less likely to get published
0: yeah so usually the flashy findings from people who it's like their pet theory they come out early the effect sizes are big they come back down to earth they settle sometimes at zero, sometimes above zero, but smaller than the initial estimates. So yeah. I, I think it'll probably settle above zero for most of these outcomes, but like most things, smaller than the initial biggest estimates of effect size. But I do want to address the the heterogeneity point. There are two things I want to mention here. Uh, first of all, intervention quality can vary dramatically, obviously, just like anything else. Like the metaphor that I've used, like if you ask if mindfulness works, that it's kind of to me like asking if teaching works or if coaching works. Yeah. Like, yeah, good teachers are, are excellent and really shitty teachers. The effect size there isn't gonna be as big, right? Like yeah. some people aren't as good at coaching, at teaching. Some people aren't as good at designing or implementing mindfulness interventions. And and frankly, some people aren't really all that about receiving mindfulness interventions, right? Like there there are many studies that happen on college campuses. Kids need extra credit. And it's like, here, listen to this for 15 minutes and then take this little quiz. You know, I'm sure there are some people who are just like, yeah, the headphones are on. But like, am I really focusing on my breathing? Am I really blocking out the fact that I have a date tonight?
1: Yeah, you're not really doing mindfulness. You're, you're doing a bit of mental math to see the extent to which the five points of extra credit you're about to get will... Uh... Whether that's going to bump you up from a C to a B. Exactly. Yeah. So like
0: mindfulness absolutely depends on intervention quality and also just an individual's receptiveness to doing mindfulness. Like, uh, I do wonder how you force someone to accept and participate in, in like really engage with a mindfulness audio tape, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that, that could contribute to the heterogeneity, and this is also a really important point. Is that uh, there, there's a great review paper, I'll put a figure up here, indicating that mindfulness probably falls on like an inverted U shaped curve, where having a deficiency of mindfulness processes is probably not ideal for well being, uh, but also having an excess of mindfulness processes also is probably not ideal for well-being and you kind of want to be in the middle there. I see you're you're smiling and I have no idea why.
1: Uh, w- when I see excess of mindfulness, I just think about the people who do psychedelics for the first time and just <laughs> lose their fucking mind. Yeah, ne- never to be retrieved. Cuz yeah. it, it does I mean sometimes they they just spiral in bizarre directions, but it, it does seem like you know, the the first time they experience like ego death and get a different and like maybe broader perspective on things uh they just like get in their own head to a dangerous extent and it just like ruins their life
0: no no there there are definitely people who have like a psychedelic a psychedelic experience and then just turn their life upside down and it's like i wish he would have thought about that a little bit more
1: beforehand yeah and particularly ayahuasca like i've i've never done any psychedelics myself but like I'd be open to trying them but like not ayahuasca. Like the, from talking to people who've done psychedelics like seems like most people generally have like pretty good experiences with like LSD and mushrooms but it seems like about a th- a third of the white guys who go down to Latin America and do ayahuasca for the first time just go insane. Uh I, I don't want to roll those dice. It's it seems like a See what one it just seems like a bad time, like I've never heard an ayahuasca experience that sounds fun uh yeah. and yeah, like it it seems uh very risky for for a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about it, um, but yeah, so when
0: we talk about this heterogeneity and effect size, you know the reality is that we not not I just... will
1: never do marijuana though, correct That's, yeah, just to be clear for the purpose of the podcast, psychedelics, as we all know get you closer to God. This is as always a Christian family values podcast. Yeah. Uh, Not marijuana though. That's, that's the bad stuff.
0: Right. So
1: because of this kind of inverted
0: U shape curve, we should expect that for some people, mindfulness is a really positive intervention, but for others, it could actually be contraindicated. Right. And so when I talked about mindfulness processes and whether you have a deficiency or an excess or kind of in that optimal middle zone, For example, one process brought up in this paper, and I'll put this on the screen as well, is self observation. So if you're someone who has really low self awareness at baseline, uh, you know, you have a deficiency of this mindfulness process, a mindfulness intervention might be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're someone who is kind of like, you know, constantly observing yourself, with a high level of anxiety or depressive symptoms or a high level even of like dissociation, the last thing you need is like, Hey, let's do a really deep reflective mindfulness exercise and just ruminate on this even
1: more. You know, that's like a pretty common symptom of a lot of like eating disorders too. Right. Um, I, I yeah, I I think, or uh, or is that like a different type of self observation?
0: I I think, um, what you would probably want to do. I mean, not this is not medical advice, but I would assume like, you know, we talked about mindfulness for eating behaviors. I think usually the object of observation there would be the food, mm-hmm. the experience of eating. It would be mindful eating, not let's do a lot of deep contemplation about your body. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah, it's, it's kind of just on where the mindfulness focus would be, but that is a, a situation where I would I would suggest or anticipate that one version of mindfulness focusing on mindful eating could be quite helpful in that scenario, but a very body-focused, reflective kind of mindfulness exercise could backfire in that situation. Um, Another one that comes up here is uh, um, exposure, right? So um, there are some instances where people have really high experiential avoidance, and in many types of therapy, they might actually walk you through some kind of visualization exercise Almost as a form of like exposure therapy to start building up some degree of comfort level within a safe setting, you know with, with a medical professional. Um, but of course, uh, if you are, you know, have a ton of anxiety about a certain thing and, and just like it, it's a really, really adverse thing when you when you start to think about it. The last thing you would want to do is some kind of unguided kind of self-directed exposure therapy where you're putting yourself into this like catastrophically, a deleterious psychological state over and over and over like mm-hmm. that's the type of thing where if you had some kind of phobia or or some kind of exposure related thing like that you know a self-guided mindfulness approach would not be ideal you'd want to seek out prob- probably some type of therapeutic uh, intervention that's guided by a medical professional yeah um, but those are just a couple examples in which you know there are some cases where being low on that mindfulness curve you know doing a mindfulness-based intervention could bump you up into that optimal range and it'd be a very positive thing. But if you're already starting with an excess of some of these mindfulness processes, doing more mindfulness would either be unhelpful or even in some cases could backfire a little bit. Uh, And so I, I think when we think about the heterogeneity that we see in this research, of course we should think about the kind of standard research design and statistical concepts But we should also think about this as a pretty targeted intervention that that isn't really the right intervention for all people in all situations. Uh, And then finally, if you've heard all this and you're interested in maybe giving it a shot, you want to get started and try some different types of uh, mindfulness-based interventions or meditation interventions, uh, a good question is how to get started. Uh, I think it's probably best, in my opinion, to start with guided meditation sessions to kind of show you the ropes because a lot of times people will just sit there for 10 minutes and say, did I do it right? (laughs) And it's like, I don't know. So yeah, a guided meditation can be really helpful. And there's a variety of free and paid apps that have those, uh, in addition to websites as well. Um, if you're specifically interested in mindful eating, uh, like I said, that paper by Nelson gives a great description of how to approach it and how to actually apply it. Uh, so I'll link that in the show notes. And then finally, um, these mindfulness practices are kind of an offshoot from buddhism um and which of course buddhism takes a lot of different forms um but if you want to explore some of the basic buddhist foundations in a totally non-non-religious uh secular way i actually think that can be helpful in some cases like so because i tried to do some mindfulness stuff actually several years ago before i'd ever thought about buddhism And one of the things I struggled with was it was like, okay, now contemplate. And I was like, contemplate what? And it made a lot more sense to me when I started to understand where some of this mindfulness meditation came from. When I learned some of just the basic kind of foundational concepts uh, within Buddhism, things like non-self, things like aimlessness, uh, things like impermanence, some of these basic foundational ideas it made it a lot easier to understand, oh, I, I understand why I'm trying to get away from ruminating on the past, being anxious about the future, getting into the present moment, and, and kind of experiencing the present moment in a non-judgmental way. Like, getting some of those foundations was a very clarifying experience for me that made it easier for me to do mindfulness interventions that really had nothing to do with Buddhism. So if you're interested in getting some of that foundational information – I do recommend Buddhism Guide, which is a podcast by Karma Yeshi Rabgay. It's on Spotify. Uh, very, very good. Very, uh, very approachable, very accessible. And then there's just a variety of books by Thich Nhat Hanh that I think are excellent. So in conclusion, uh, mindfulness is not for everyone. Uh, like I said, there is that kind of inverted U-shaped curve. Um, it's not the perfect thing for all people, for all outcomes. But there are evidence-based applications when it comes to recovery from mental fatigue sleep enhancement, um, eating behavior improvement, pain management. Uh, and I think the easiest way to dive in is to find a nice app or a nice website that has some, some guided mindfulness exercises to kind of show you the ropes. And just to be clear, you don't have to switch religions to, to get into this stuff. You don't have to commit to any kind of dogmatic beliefs or embrace any metaphysical concepts in order to participate Uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised to see how approachable these things are. And they can be as simple as just saying, hey, take a few deep breaths, calm down and just give your mind permission to rest. Uh, And after you do that a few times, it it becomes really alarming. You you start to realize, like, I don't think my brain was resting for like 12 years until I gave this a shot. So uh, not for everybody, but but, you know, it's it, it can be a helpful thing for for the outcomes that I mentioned. Sounds good, man. All right. Anything to add before we wrap up the hundredth episode?
1: Um, I don't think so. Nothing, nothing's immediately coming to mind. Awesome. Um,
0: well, everyone, as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting us and allowing us to get into the triple digits, a hundred episodes. That's a huge, uh, a huge milestone to hit and we couldn't do it without you. So thanks so much for listening and supporting. And we will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do. So we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You could sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.